Well, who are you? What is your identity? How is it that you introduce yourself uh, to new people at parties and things like that? What do you say about yourself? Here in Australia, we have fought for the right to be able to identify ourselves in any way that we choose and to expect other people to then relate to us on the basis of how we have chosen to be identified. We choose. And we often define ourselves around our preferences, around our occupations, around our achievements, around the things that we like, around our appearance, around our attitudes, around our abilities. But they're things that we choose to align ourselves to and to identify ourselves with. But who are you really? What actually is your identity? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, how do you fit into God's plan for the nations of the world? Does your identity have anything to do with that? Last week, we looked at the identity of the nation of Israel. And we saw how, as that nation was formed, central to their identity is that they were called to be God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were to be mediators between God and the rest of the world, the rest of the nations. And we saw that instead of them actually obeying his covenant and doing that, they were disobedient. And in the end, instead of them being the servant of the Lord, God sent his one and only son to be the servant of the Lord, to bring the light, um, to bring light to the world, light to the nations. The mission of God is about God sending his son, Jesus, into the world. What does that have to do with you and me? One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he lined up the Jewish leaders and he told them a story. He told them a parable about his identity. It's from Matthew 21 and it goes like this. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants that will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Now, as Jesus told that story, he was telling a story about himself, of course. He was the son in the parable. The father sent him and he was rejected. And the Jewish leaders who heard him say this knew exactly what they were talking about. They knew exactly that he was pointing the finger at them and saying, you are rejecting God's son, that's who I am. And it infuriated them. So you know what they did? They fulfilled the parable. (laughs) They plotted to kill him then and there. See, this mission is the father sending his son. But the son is rejected. Now amongst the disciples, Peter was there that day. He heard what Jesus said and he understood as well. And years later, he wrote a letter. And we heard a bit of that being read out just a moment ago. Hear the echo of what Peter wrote in this letter, having been taught this passage by Jesus. Peter wrote, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. See, Jesus taught that he was indeed the stone that the builders rejected. And now Peter is passing on that teaching as well. Jesus is in verse 8 of 1 Peter 2, the stone that causes people to stumble and the rock that makes them fall. And the builders, when Jesus first mentioned this, were the Jewish leaders. But now as Peter um, writes about it, the ones that reject, the builders that reject this stone are all those who don't believe in, or in fact in verse 4, all of humanity who generally reject the Lord Jesus. Ignoring or rejecting Jesus is a disaster. And it's a disaster that comes about when people disobey the message, you see in verse 7, or do not believe, which is what verse 8 says. As we look briefly now at the rest of this passage, it would be a great idea, if you could, to open a Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we together are going to think about mission, who we are and what our place in God's purposes might be. And we're going to see four things. We're going to see who the Father thinks Jesus is. We're going to see who the Father thinks you are. Then we're going to see what the world thinks of you. And lastly, I want to finish by asking you again, who are you? What is your identity? First then, who the Father thinks Jesus is. Jesus is chosen. And precious as a cornerstone here. You see it in verse 4 and again in verse 6. And that word precious uh, is a good word to describe a stone, a precious stone. But a better word to use here would be honoured. It's the same word. The point is here not that Jesus is shiny and sparkly and valuable, but that he is honoured by God the Father. 
Uh, verse 6, in this holy city, Zion, God has chosen and placed Jesus as the cornerstone. The point of the cornerstone is that every other stone that's laid takes the cornerstone as its starting point. The cornerstone sets the level. It tells you which way the wall's going to go in this direction, which way the wall's going to go in that direction, and how it's going to go straight up. The cornerstone sets the direction for every other stone. The cornerstone determines what is true or correct, and everything is measured against it. And it's that at the end of verse 7 that the builders reject. It's that that the world rejects. The idea that Jesus is the standard against which everything else is going to be measured. That Jesus determines what is true. That Jesus determines the directions and the levels for the whole of life. But Jesus is chosen and honoured by God with exactly that role. Notice too, uh, right at the start of verse 4, Jesus is the living stone. Now, there's risks with all kinds of um, metaphors and pictures, and the risk with calling Jesus a stone is that you might think that he's immovable and not doing very much, just kind of sitting there. But the idea of the living stone is that uh, Jesus is active in history, he continues to be active in history, and his role of determining what is right and true continues. He is a living stone. And Peter's already hearted highlighted for us that Jesus' resurrection is the key to our hope. Jesus is alive and active now because it is the raised Lord Jesus who is the living stone, chosen and honoured by God. That's who the Father thinks Jesus is. Well, who does the Father think that you and I are? I wonder if you heard, as we read out before, the connection between the identity of Jesus as the living stone and the identity of you also, who, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Who does the Father think you are? Well, in this passage, we slide through a whole bunch of pictures, of metaphors, uh, but the basic point is that all those who believe in Jesus are identified with him. They find their life in him. Their identity is determined by his identity. See, if that is you, if you believe in Jesus, this is what God the Father says of who you are in verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is the temple, but here those who trust in him are being built up as the temple. Jesus is the great high priest, but here those who trust him become a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. And this identity is filled out further down in verses 9 and 10 in a description that's taken directly out of Exodus 19, the passage we looked at together last week. Originally describing Israel, but here describing anyone who believes in Jesus. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you, if you believe in Jesus, 
are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this was in Exodus 19 a description of what Israel could become if they obeyed the covenant. But here is a description of anyone who does believe in the Lord Jesus. This is what you are already. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are to speak the word of God to the world and to bring the concerns of the world to God in prayer. That is who we are to be the temple, the holy priesthood. God is saying through his word today that if you trust in Jesus, that is your identity. That is who you are. And he's given you and me this identity so that we will do one thing. We will, he says, declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who God says we are. Well, what does the world think of us? We need to know what God thinks of us because, frankly, it is so different to what the world thinks of us. We cannot, we must not expect to be loved for following Jesus. The world that we are sent out into is the world that loves darkness more than light. The world that does not want Jesus to be the cornerstone determining right and wrong and the direction of their lives. The world that does not believe in and has no intention even of obeying Jesus. And if we are identified with Jesus, they will not want us either. This is the world that we are to go out into. This is the world in which we proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Last week we saw that Jesus becomes the suffering servant, the servant in the place of Israel, the new Israel, who's going to take light out into the world to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And now we see that as his followers, our identity is to be in him. And in fact, we are sent just as he was sent. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that just as the Father sent me, so I send you. Our sending is the same. We are tasked with carrying on the work of this suffering servant. This work that involves seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And just like Jesus, for us, it may also involve suffering. You see, the world does not think we are living stones. The world thinks we've got rocks in our head. So who are you? How do you know who you are? What is your identity? Have you got rocks in your head? How would you know? Most of us don't want to think of ourselves like that. We don't want to accept the world's verdict. 
We want to exercise our right to determine our own identity, don't we? We choose. In this passage, though, do you see you don't choose? You choose to believe in Jesus once that is done. This is who you are. This is your identity. You are identified with Jesus. But more importantly, it's not just a statement about who I am as an individual or who you are as an individual. It's who we are together, collectively. Don't get me wrong, you are loved as an individual. You are important to God on your own. That's great. But the most important things that there are to say about my identity or yours are actually true of us together, not as individuals. We are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. Although we were nothing, God made us royalty by his mercy, do you see in verse 10. That's actually the thing that changes everything. The thing that allows us to enter into this identity, to have this new identity, is God's mercy. So I am who I am, not because of what I can do, not because of what I know, not because of how I look, not because of what I've achieved, not because of how many Facebook friends I have or how many twits follow me. It's my identity, who I am, rests on Jesus. I am who I am by God's mercy. Study after study is coming back at the moment showing the link between social anxiety and social media. Uh, You'll sense this, I'm sure. We've always loved to be affirmed. Everybody likes to be liked. uh, And we like to think that people would take notice of us. But with social media, that's now been weaponized. And as we race to define our wonderful own individual sense of identities, we are racing into a bitter world that is waiting to just shoot us down and cast judgment on the person we are trying to create ourselves to be. We long for approval, for affirmation. We long to be valued. We long to be recognized. We long to not be put to shame. And so we cultivate our image, don't we? We edit what we say, we edit how we appear to attract the maximum number of likes and we're careful to display ourselves on our best behaviour at our best moments and all of the pics are of celebrations and achievements and important activities. And isn't it exhausting? Isn't it exhausting to chase that rush? And what happens if the approval never comes? Who are you? Who am I? Hear again what God says about you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him. 
who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Is that not enough? Could you be more highly honoured than that? Is someone else going to declare you to be more valuable than that? Does anyone else's opinion matter more to you than God's? Friends, we need to feel the cool, liberating breeze of this truth. We are who we are, precious in the sight of God, not by our accomplishments, but by his mercy. That is who we are. And so we can rejoice and be proud that we are honoured by the king of the universe. That in fact, we belong to the royal family. But better than that, no matter how you feel, you are never alone in this. It is not just about me or you as individuals. It is our identity. And not just our identity or the, the identity of people who come to our church. We are joined into a fellowship across every tribe and nation, every language, every tongue, every cultural group throughout the world. Chosen people, a royal priesthood, gathered together as living stones, God's special possession. And our identity as living stones comes from being built into the Lord Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He sets the agenda for our life and he delivers us our preciousness. Now that affects every part of our lives, of course, but it is most important for us to note from this passage what it means we are to do. What do people with this identity do? They announce, they proclaim, they declare the praises or the excellencies, the wonderful things of the one who called us out of darkness into light. From the time of the earliest church in Acts to the growth throughout the Roman Empire to revivals in East Africa last century or in China this century or the dramatic church growth we're seeing in places like Iran or Mongolia today or in parts of India, the gospel has gone forward most powerfully in human history as ordinary people have proclaimed just how excellent is the Lord Jesus. Most of the time it's not complicated. It's not professionally delivered. It's simple stories about the wonders of Jesus told by ordinary people who are in fact not ordinary but are chosen people, precious and dearly loved children of the King. The mission committee and the leaders here at Fig Tree have done a great job in helping you to prioritise the mission partners that you as a church support. There are so many good things that you could be doing in the world and so many different directions that you could be pulled in. But because we are sent as Jesus was sent, proclaiming him is actually what mission is all about. Seeing people come to know and to grow mature in their trust of the Lord Jesus is what mission is all about. 
And all week you've been hearing about your gospel partners around the world doing this in different languages, in different places, in different ways all around the world. But it's not just their goal to do that. That is who they are. And that is who you are. You are a dearly loved child who is a proclaimer of the excellencies of Jesus. Because it's not just the identity of missionaries. That's our identity. That's the group that we belong to. So let me ask you, how are you going with that? How's that going in your workplace? Is it hostile? Do you feel rejection sometimes? It can be tough, can't it? In your schoolyard or wherever you are. When I was training in the police academy um, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, we had a detective sergeant come in uh, to talk to all of the cadets. And as he came in, uh, he told us he was an undercover officer and he'd worked a long undercover sting amongst bikey gangs uh, in the west of Sydney. And he was telling us about a time uh, when he was actually discovered undercover by a bikey gang. You can imagine the setting. He's in the clubhouse and they've worked out that he's a police officer. And the room is crowded full of bikies. And they're staring at him and you could almost feel the hate towards this man who's a policeman and they start threatening him and he just sat there smiling and that made them even angrier so what are you smiling for we've just told you we know who you are we're going to come after you and he just sat there smiling and finally the sergeant at arms came up to him and said what's wrong with you we know who you are Aren't you worried about what we're going to do to you? And he said, no, because you know who I am. And as tough as you think your gang is, I belong to a gang of 17,000 and they all carry weapons. And if you do anything to me, they're coming after you. Do you see the security that knowing your identity brings in a crisis? Now, friends, I'm not promising you an easy life, but I want to tell you this. You belong to a gang of uncountable numbers. Well, not a gang, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And whatever the threats are out there, we know that in fact the war has been won and victory is Jesus's. And we might not be tough, but he is mighty. And so we are unafraid, aren't we, to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Because we know that we are chosen and precious to God. And we know that by simply speaking the name of Jesus into people's lives, they too can go from darkness to light, from death to life.
We look forward to being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, to be gathered around the throne of God and the Lamb with people from every tribe and every nation, every language or tongue, every cultural group, singing the praises of this God because together we are his chosen people, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, the ones who have been shown mercy, the people of God. You and I will never get the chance to be part of anything bigger or more important than that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear word that you sent the Lord Jesus and so you send us. You send us into the world and whether we're going across the lounge room or across the street or across the city or across the nation or across oceans, all of us have the same identity. In Christ, we are chosen and precious and we are called to proclaim to speak of his greatness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be bold, that we would lean into your mission, that we would pray sacrificially, that we would give sacrificially, that we'd be ready to go sacrificially and joyfully, Father, that we would speak Jesus' name wherever we are. We pray it for our good and his glory. Amen.